Well, good morning, 1045. How are we? My name is Grace Marie Ward. If I don't know you, it's nice that to meet you, and I'm so glad you're here to join us in worship. I have a confession to start with this morning. You know how whenever we usually get up at this part of the service, I've noticed we've fallen into this thing where the speaker will refer to you guys as the rowdy crowd. Has anybody noticed that? All right, well, I felt like I needed to let the nine o'clock group know that that little competition was going on. So I referred to them as the rowdy crowd this morning. So I need to know if you guys are ready this morning. Are you gonna be the rowdy crowd? All right, she said, somebody said, no, we're the rowdy crowd. Okay, got it. All right, well, we'll, we'll, see, how, we'll see how that goes. We are continuing our series, Wisdom in the Wilderness. And I'll just go ahead and say for the top, we're, we're gonna go in this morning, okay? So it's a little heavier but I believe that God's gonna speak to us in incredible ways as we actually walk through the scripture together. It's very important that we do that together as a community and as a body. And I know a couple of the guys that have done the message in this series, they've started with the bear story, you know? Like they've been in the wilderness. I'm not doing that, okay? Because I'm not dumb. I don't put myself in situations like that. But I'm gonna start with a story at the beach, okay? When I was in elementary school, my family took a trip to the beach. It wasn't quite Myrtle Beach, but it was close enough, okay? So we were in that area, and I remember that um, we were down at the shore, and that you know one of the best things to do when you go to the beach is to see what's washed up on the shore, right? What's come from the ocean. And so my brother Michael and I, I was probably seven, he was probably around five years old, and so we're walking up and down the shoreline trying to find what's washed up on the shore. We're getting a little collection going. And I remember we come across something, we're over off to the side by ourselves, and we come across something that was really pretty. And it was, you know, it had a little color to it. It, it, it looked a little translucent. It's what we call a jellyfish, okay? Now, I was smart enough to know that I think this thing might can hurt me if I pick it up, but I wasn't sure because it might be dead and it might not be the kind that stings you. So I had this little battle going on in my mind, but I really wanted to pick it up. I really wanted to know what it was for sure and if it can hurt us and I wanted to add it to our collection. So I'm sitting there and I'm battling this in my mind. How can I know for sure this isn't gonna hurt me? How can I know for sure that this is something that I can pick up? Enter my little brother. So I spend the next few minutes convincing Michael hey, like, hey, why don't you pick that up? And, he, you know, of course, he's like, well, well, why don't you pick it up? And I'm like, well, just it's fine. Just you pick it up. So we go back for a few minutes, and eventually, somehow, I was able to convince him to pick it up. Now, of course, I was doing this because I wasn't sure if this was a good idea or not, but I'm like, I'm not gonna put myself in this situation. So he, in his, you know, just very young self, trusting me, reached down, he picked the jellyfish up, and right time he got it in his hands, it began to sting him. So he drops it, and when he drops it, it just begins to slide down his side and sting him more, and then slide down his leg, and then sting him more. Needless to say, it was an excruciating situation and honestly a very traumatic experience for him and for me when my parents found out why he ended up picking it up. I'm sorry, mom and dad, right now. <laughs> but I remember that was, a, that was a bad situation, but the reality was I needed to test the situation because I didn't really have confidence in the situation. I didn't really trust what it could or couldn't do. So I felt the need to run my own little test, unfortunately, for my brother. You see, testing happens when we have some level of a lack of trust or there's not quite enough confidence 
in that thing. And we do this in everyday life, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. We do this in lots of situations. How many of you have gone to a pool for a pool day, and people say, go ahead and jump in, the water's nice, but before you do, you wanna what? Dip your toes in the water. You wanna test the water. You're like, I don't even know what I'm getting into. How cold is it gonna be? I'm just gonna go for it, I know, but I need to know what the temperature is. How about when we test drive a car? Anybody go on a test drive in a car? It's very rare that you just blindly buy a car. Normally, you like have at least sat in a car like it. You wanna know how it handles, how it handles the road. You wanna know that it feels good when you drive it. So you take it on a little test drive. You wanna make sure that you wanna spend that money on that car. How about some of you teenagers in the room that you're spending lots of time these days testing your parents, trying to figure out what you can get away with? How far can I push this? Can I be honest about this? Should I lie a little bit? And let me just be here. Let me just tell you that that's not establishing any trust in your parents' mind towards you, okay? It's not working, I promise. But we do that. Or how about any of you that are in relationships when, it, when your anniversary is coming up? I hear some of my married friends talk about this. When their anniversary is coming up, it's like, well, I don't know if he remembers my anniversary or not. And I'm not gonna remind him. I'm gonna, if, he, if I wake up the next morning, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't love me. He forgot. He forgot our anniversary. And you see all this angst building around and I'm like, just tell him, like, give him a day's heads up in case he did forget. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if he does. That's called putting the relationship to the test. Not actually sure if you're confident, they're gonna come through in a certain way. You see, testing is a result of a lack of trusting. At some level, there's a lack of trust or a lack of confidence in that thing, and so you're trying to establish that trust, and it could be really dangerous when it comes to relationships, especially in our relationship with God, when there isn't trust there, when there's a lack of confidence. And it's very true for us today to recognize that the wilderness season that we often find ourselves in, in situations, is a very season that will reveal that to us. Reveal that maybe we're not as confident as we thought we were. You see, the last several weeks, we have been looking through the book of Matthew chapter four when Jesus was in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness, he's facing different temptations from the devil. And the ultimate goal, this is what I wanted us to get this morning, the ultimate goal of the devil was to try to get Jesus the Son to not have confidence in God the Father. He was trying to slowly tear down his view of God the Father in Jesus' mind, not to get him to trust him, to question him, to tear down his view of him, because in the wilderness, it was the best place to do that. We've defined the wilderness over the past several weeks as this. It's a place that strips us of all comfort and self-sufficiency. A place that strips us of all comfort and self-sufficiency. And it may not be a physical wilderness that you've wandered into, but maybe a season where you feel that. And while you're in that, it's very natural and normal to ask questions like, why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I going through this? And the reasons we end up in these seasons are different for each one of us. And if you are leaning towards wanting to understand more about that, I encourage you to go back and listen to week one of this series as we talk about that in detail. But when we're in the wilderness season, there's always something that God can teach us while we're there. And that's what we're gonna do this morning. To know where we have been the past few weeks, I wanna recap the first few verses of this passage just to get us where we are and to remember. I know y'all thought about it all week and you've been reading it, but we're gonna read it again. All right, Matthew 4, one through four. Let's look at this together. 
It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came out and said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Satan came to Jesus and tempted him with the human craving of, hey, you're hungry. You've been out here for 40 days. Why don't you use your power and just turn this, this stone to bread? I mean, you could do that, right? But Jesus knows that there's way more going on with the intent of the devil. So he responds with scripture, as you can see from the passage. Ultimately, all he's doing is trying to get him to question who he is in God the Father. So today what we're gonna do, we're gonna jump in, y'all. I hope you can follow along with me in Matthew 4 if you have your Bible or on your phone or on the screen. We're gonna look at what this next temptation is and why it was so critical as Satan is trying to just get Jesus to actually test God and why there was a testing there. Let's look at Matthew 4, 5 through 7. I'm gonna read this passage for us where we're gonna spend our time today. It says this, then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. You must not test the Lord your God. Now, as we walk through this passage, I wanna look verse by verse, and this is what some questions I want us to ask us as we study this together. Where did the devil take Jesus? What did he say when he took him there? And how did Jesus respond? There's three verses, there's three questions I'm asking with each one. Where did he take Jesus? What did he say when he took him there? And how did Jesus respond? And what can we learn from Jesus as our example? So the first question, where did he take Jesus? It says this in verse five again. The devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. Now, when we read that, it's like, well, that's odd. This seems very strategic, right? This was the physical place of God's dwelling. You would think if the devil wanted to tempt Jesus and temptation one didn't work and he's coming from another angle, he'd wanted what? Take him further into the wilderness. Take him further away from anything that would remind him of God and his presence altogether. Yet he takes him to the very place where it is known by those people that the presence of God dwells. A picture of the temple, what it would potentially have looked like during this time is this. It was a huge area and there's lots of different walls and gates and who can enter into different areas of it. And scholars, you know, there's a lot of debate about which point of the temple was, was it actually the highest point? Some versions call it the pinnacle of the temple, which was more of a place where people came out and made announcements to a crowd of people. There's lots of debate about that. But regardless, what I want us to do is realize that this was like the devil taking Jesus to church. That's weird, right? He came after his human cravings to begin with, with food, and now all of a sudden you see the devil appealing to his spiritual side. Oh, I see that you're spiritual. So let me take you to 
the house of God, where the presence of God is known to dwell. The devil takes him to church, basically. For any of you that play sports or have played sports growing up, you know what it was like to, to play on your home court, right? I mean, it was like, oh, playing at home, you feel good. When you go to an away game, and you're in somebody else's house, somebody else's field, somebody else's stadium, it's just a lot harder to get the energy that you have when you're at a home game, right? When you're in a away game, you feel, all right, I gotta work a little harder. Everything feels a little more against me. You know, the crowd is more filled with your opponents than with your actual team fans. And so it just seems like you have to work harder. But when you're at a home game, you got the home court advantage. Like I'm in my space, I'm in my house. We got a little music playing. It's exciting. You feel like you step into it a little bit ahead of the game. The devil intentionally took Jesus basically to the home base, to the spiritual headquarters, as you could say. He had the home court advantage if you're just looking at the situation. And the devil would have been in a place that would not be for him. It would be out of bounds for him. He would think this would be the energy against him, but he's up to something. Why would he do this? It's like, this is odd. Let's keep on. He takes him there, but what does he say to Jesus? In verse six, it says this. If you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. I want you to just think about this for a second. Not only did the devil take Jesus to the center of religious activity, to where all the religious people gathered, he actually used the scriptures against him. He takes him to God's house and uses God's book as a way to try to get him to do something he wasn't supposed to do. Notice in the first temptation, he never even mentioned the scriptures, Satan. But then when Jesus responded with the scriptures, all of a sudden you see him coming after a spiritual side. It's like he is saying this, oh, I see Jesus. Oh, I see, you're, you're very religious. You're very religious and, and I see that you just, you just quoted the scripture. So let me actually, let me show you, Jesus, that the scripture actually says this. And, and if you really trust God, you're, you're gonna take that jump, right? Because you think, you believe God's with you, right? And, and you, you do believe what the Bible says, right? So you, why don't you jump? You see, the enemy has a way of misusing what was intended for good. The enemy has a way of misquoting truth in order to bring confusion. The enemy has a way of manipulating God's words against God's ways. And we're foolish to think that that doesn't happen today because it does. I'm reading a book. I'm going to show you the title, but I'm, when, when I told Pastor Jeff I was reading this, I think he was a little taken back at first, but trust me, this is the name of the book, How Not to Read the Bible. Some of you are like, no problem, I don't read it anyways. <laughs> How Not to Read the Bible, Making Sense of, and it lists a whole bunch of stuff, making sense of some of the things that absolutely seem crazy in the Bible. And one of my favorite chapters, and this is a, it's an incredible book, by the way, one of my favorite chapters is called Never Read a Bible Verse. Now, some of you out there are like, who is this lady, and what is she telling us? 
but never read just a Bible verse. What it's saying is in this book is that the importance of understanding the context of what's happening, the culture of what's happening. A lot of people can take the Bible today and say a lot of things with it or misquote it and do a lot of evil intent with it. But here, I want you to hear this this morning. The enemy will do way more harm trying to discredit God's word rather than distract you from God's word. I'm gonna say that again. The enemy will do way more harm trying to discredit God's word in your heart, in your mind, rather than distract you from God's word. What do I mean? If you spend any time on the internet today, there's lots of things about the Bible. There's lots of things about the church. There's lots of things about Christianity that will come up. And what I've noticed over and over again is there's some extremes that are happening. One of the extremes, I think, is that people take scripture and absolutely make it a mockery. One extreme is that people will just take a verse in the Bible completely out of context, try to apply it to something, not knowing anything that's around it, and say, wow, look what you Christians believe. I can't believe you believe this. The enemy is trying to discredit, not just make you forget or discard God's word or distract you from it. And then you have other people who I think maybe oftentimes mean well, but they just misapply scripture. They just take things kind of where they are and they don't necessarily understand the whole narrative of what God has been doing throughout history and it'll be misapplied and they'll just say, well, it's in the Bible. But there's so much, there's so much going on in the way that God is speaking through history. Absolutely, I believe the Bible and every word in it, but I believe that it is being used so wrong at times. The other side of it, you see a lot of people take God's word and use it full-blown for manipulation. They'll take it and just say, well, the Bible says this, and it's out of control, and it's out of power, and it's to get a platform, and it's not. It's missing the whole intent of what God's heart is for people. And I think when we see that, that the devil actually uses scripture here, it's a reminder for us that the enemy will, will misuse and bring disillusion and confusion all around us with the intent of pulling us away from what God actually means in his word and the context of what he is saying. Even though the enemy uses scripture, Jesus had the wisdom enough to know the enemy's intent here. And I was like, um, no, I know what's going on here. So what does he say? We know where he took him, what he said to him, but what does Jesus say back to him in verse seven? He says simply this, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. The scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord our God. Jesus calls him out essentially because yes, the devil had quoted something actually from Psalm 91, but he didn't quote all of it and he didn't give the context for it and it was not meant for Jesus at that time and at that place. You see, when Jesus says to him, don't test the Lord, he's referring back to a story of the Israelites. We've looked at them a lot the past few weeks also as they wandered in the wilderness and we refers back to them. He's referring to something in Exodus 17 when they were wandering. They had been rescued for Egypt, rescued from Egypt. Now they're headed to the promised land. God has shown himself faithful to them in the past and they're supposed to be believing that God's gonna be faithful in the present, in the future. He said they get out there and they start arguing about when they were gonna get the water that they wanted. So a big argument breaks out. And this is what he's referring to when Jesus says, don't test the Lord. It's this, Exodus 17, it says, Moses named the place Massah, which means test. 
and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? You see, ultimately, the devil wanted Jesus to ask that question, is the Lord here with me or not? And I think that's often what we're faced with when we're in a wilderness season, when we're going through a hard time and we don't understand why we're there and why it's taking so long and why we can't get out. The question that we begin to ask in our own heart and soul is that, is the Lord here with me or not? Lord, are you here? Can I actually trust you? Am I really confident that you're gonna lead me out or there's a purpose in this wilderness season? Are you here with me or not? Ultimately trying to tear down, do we have confidence in God or not, our Father? The word test here means this, to put to proof God's character and power. Think about that. To put to proof God's character and power is God who he says he really is. So those are, those are the three verses for us this morning. Some of y'all are like, and why was he not supposed to jump off the building? Why not jump from the temple? Why did he go there? What I want us to do is look at two quick takeaways this morning. What takeaways do we have as looking at G, to Jesus as our example today? When we look to Jesus as our example in this situation, most likely you're not gonna find yourself at the top of any building like that with the devil tempting you in that way, but what can we take away that Jesus gave us an example for today? The first thing I see is this, that we need a faith that trusts the guidance of God. There are lots of voices that wanna guide you. There are a lot of voices around you that want to guide you, that want to lead you, that want to speak to you, that want to distract you from the plan maybe God has for you. But they're like, hey, but what, what about this? What about this situation? And people that are misusing God's word, but ultimately we need to trust the guidance of God. Listen to this. Trusting God doesn't mean throwing caution to the wind and doing something foolish. Trusting God doesn't mean ignoring the wise advice of other people. Trusting God doesn't mean insisting on doing what you wanna do regardless of what the consequence is and expecting God to intervene. Trusting God doesn't mean jumping off a building and being foolish just because you could say, well, God's gonna protect me because he's supposed to and if he doesn't, then I was supposed to just, this was supposed to happen. We wear seatbelts because we believe that's a wise thing to do. You're not just gonna say, well, if, I, if it happens and I get in a wreck, it just is what it is. No, that's being foolish, that's trusting yourself and testing God. We wash our hands because they, it's been proven for years and years that's the way to not spread certain diseases. It's wisdom. Some of you live your life foolishly, honestly, and just think you can ignore certain things in scriptures and certain order and principle that God's put into the world and will step back and say, well, God, if God loves me, then he's gonna rescue me or he's gonna intervene. What I'm not saying is that there will be situations where you're asked to do hard things, but the key is, is it God leading you to do that? Is it God guiding you through his word, or through the advice of people, that that's the step of faith, the leap of faith that we often use. Of course, there are situations where God calls us to do that. But real faith is not just haphazardly living your life and expecting God to always intervene in the way that you want him to. Knowing what God's word is really saying is critical 
for guidance in your life each and every day. Do we have anyone in the room who's been scuba diving? Anyone? I had a few in the first one. Did y'all do your test at Lake Murray? Because I see, I see people out there doing their tests. I'm like, that's cool. Well, what'd you give? Oh, there's a city down there. That's what somebody told me. That's pretty cool. Or a little town, not a city. Um, I, I've never scuba dived. Snorkeling is about as crazy as I get when it comes to that. And the last time I went snorkeling, I got like motion sickness. So like, I cannot do that, okay? You will not find me with the scuba gear on. But I recently read a story about someone who went scuba diving and they said that they, they went scuba diving they, they were with a group of people and they, they got kind of down into a deeper area and it was an area where everything was being kicked up a lot. There was a lot of debris in the water and they couldn't see like even a foot, but like a foot in front of their face. And it got to the point where they were trying to swim. They lost their group. They couldn't tell, wait, which way is up, which way is down. I'm completely like turned upside down. And of course, what did he do? He began to panic. See, this is why I don't go scuba diving. I would have a full-blown panic attack in the bottom of the ocean. He begins to panic. He begins to worry. He was to freak out. And while he's in the middle of panicking and disillusion and not knowing which way to go to get back to the surface, he remembered that one of the things that they told him was this, that if you get disoriented, disillusioned, you don't know where you go, you lost your group, and you need to find the surface, all you need to do is blow. When you're blowing out of your breathing apparatus, follow the bubbles. Because the bubbles will always lead you to the surface. Friends, the reality is this. When God's word is correctly being used, when the intent of it is to truly see what God is saying for us here today, it will always guide you towards him and his purposes towards you. It will not guide you in a way that will disillusion you even more or confuse you or leave you not knowing which way is up. It will always pull you to him and to his purposes for you because when it's, when it's correctly applied, it will draw you towards God, not away from him. Some of you are like, okay, I get it. I won't go to the top of this building that Satan may tempt me and jump off. So I'm not testing God. I don't test God. But don't we want to stop for a minute and consider the ways that maybe we do foolish things sometimes as Christians and we claim to act in faith? We're really seeking to put God to the test. Someone gave me a few examples of some things I was reading. How about when we purchase something what we cannot afford and we know we can't afford it? We're going to trust God to provide. Mm -hmm. I'm living in faith. I can't afford that car. I'm living in faith, though, because my God provides for me. I don't think that's the point of faith. How about when we make a foolish commitment and we know we don't have the means to actually fulfill that commitment, and then we're like, well, God better intervene and help me do this if he really loves me. I'm gonna claim it. I don't think that's what faith is meant to look like. How about when we won't surrender certain areas of our life? We're like, no, I'm gonna hold on to that one. Because until God changes my circumstance... I don't think I can trust him yet, so I'm gonna keep just holding on to that. This is not the way faith works. Faith does not work this way. Trust looks like trusting in the character of God, knowing who he's been in the past, the present, and who he will be in the future. We need a faith that trusts the guidance of God, and isn't it good to know? And we see from this passage practically that Jesus did not fall 
for the scheme and this intent of the devil to pull them away from God's purposes rather than towards it. The second thing I think we could take away as an example of Jesus in our life is this. We need a faith that trusts the timing of God. We need a faith that trusts the timing of God. Possibly the quickest way out of the wilderness season, which is what we're always interested in. How do I get out of here? How do I get past this? The quickest way out of the wilderness season for Jesus possibly would have been to actually jump because then God would rescue him and then all the people below that could have seen that would immediately known he was the Messiah. Well, that's enticing, isn't it? Huh, I don't have to take this road ahead of me that's gonna be full of suffering and full of difficulty that will actually end in the cross. People can know right here and now that I'm the king of the Jews, the one they've been longing for. You see, this kind of testing would have gone against the timing of God. To bypass the road ahead may always seem like that's something you wanna do, but it wasn't the way that God was guiding him, even though that's exactly what the devil would have wanted. See, often we want, to, we want the quick route, don't we? We want to bypass anything that's going to be hard. All right, all right when, am I, when am I getting out of this? When am I going to get to the end? I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm sick of this season. When I was in high school, I remember, and I'm, all of you too, I'm assuming most of y'all were in school, and you were required to read like all the classic novels, you know? And I remember like, oh man, I, I did not like to read in high school at all. And so my first thought, anytime I was given a novel to read, you know, like for 10th grade English, you gotta read like Pride and Prejudice. My first thought was like, all right, I gotta get the cliff notes. I gotta get the cliff notes. All I needed is the bare minimum of the story so that I can write a book report, okay? And if they didn't have the cliff notes, I was really in trouble, so I'd have to talk to a friend who was smarter than me and actually read the book, give me like the quick lowdown so I can just like get a passing grade. I don't even care if it's a C, that's fine. No problem. So I realized, you know, as I've gotten a little older, I'm like, I feel like I really missed out on like some depth, you know? Like I'll hear people refer to certain things and I'm like, I didn't read that book. I don't know. Like I, I only got the highlights. And so about three or four years ago, I came across this poster and it was, it's called 100 Novels to Read in Your Lifetime. And it's an actual, it was a full poster. I have it sitting up in my living room and it's a scratch off poster. So when you complete a novel, you like has a little like gold foil and you go and scratch it off and it reveals the art. And I've read some incredible books these past few years. I actually finished Great Expectations on Friday. Okay, that was quite, it was 560 some pages. All right, thank you. Somebody please clap for me. <laughs> a lot. And I also, I've read books like Frankenstein and Moby Dick, which is like, it was quite the undertaking. I read that several summers ago. All these novels that I had skipped and only heard little bits and pieces of stories over the years. Now I'm like, all right, I'm diving in and I'm doing this. And it's, and it's no one is doing this with me. I'm just like, I'm gonna try to do it. I've probably gotten 20 or so off the list so far, so I have a really, really long ways to go. But a lot of times, we need the full story and the full journey and the ups and downs and the valleys and the mountains and all the things to understand and appreciate at the very end of it all, the purpose of the whole thing. But too often, we're just like, all right, let's get out of this. Let's the highlight. What's next? How long is this season gonna last? We don't wanna put in the time. We began to question how long things take. And I'll be the first to admit this morning, this is incredibly hard for me. 
it is incredibly hard for me because I'm very much the natural one to say, all right, let's, all right, what's next? How long is this gonna last? Why is this taking so long? Let's move on. But sometimes our confidence in God wavers because our timing doesn't line up with his. And his timing doesn't line up with our expectations. Some of you in the room are feeling that this morning. But we need a faith that trusts in who God is in these wilderness seasons when the times feel like it's taking too long. What are we learning? What is God trying to teach me? Why is this happening? And Jesus himself was able to not fall for this temptation of the devil, even though he knew the road ahead of him was full of suffering and three years of ministry. They were an important three years. See, this morning, I think all of us have the opportunity to consider what condition our faith is in. Some of you, you hear this this morning and you're like, okay, so we learned about Jesus being taken to the temple to be told to jump off, but then Jesus didn't do it and responded with scripture that says, don't test the Lord. What is this all about? I think for us, the reality is we're gonna be in situations where we're tempted, probably not a situation like that, but situations where we're tempted to question the guidance of God in our life and listen to the right voice, questions to question, to question the timing of God. And do we have the kind of faith that can sustain through those temptations? Do we have the kind of faith that can sustain through a wilderness season? Or do those seasons or those temptations absolutely shake your faith and unground you? You see, no matter where you are in your journey this morning, all of us can take that next step. Psalm 910 says this, I read this this week and it was an encouragement to me and I wanted to share it with you. It says, those who know your name trust in you. For you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. It doesn't matter where you are on this faith journey this morning. You can take the step of searching for God seeking after him, having the posture of, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. And Jesus is our perfect example. He invites us to walk with him into fullness of life, a life that can sustain the wilderness, a life that can sustain these temptations, and a life that we can live fully dependent on him. This is not blindly accepting whatever is said to you. This is not about not having doubts about certain things, but what is grounding you to have the faith that's needed to sustain a season like that? A, a few weeks ago, Brett and I were in the office and Brett and I, where's Brett? Hey, Brett. Brett and I obviously work together uh, throughout the week because we're both on the worship staff here. And we talk a lot about situations where our faith is tested or the condition of our faith, it feels like, in, in our society today, and just the constant um, erosion of confidence in God and distrust in God's word and people writing it off for all these reasons. And so several weeks ago, we were working on some songs together. That's one thing we get to do is we get to, to work here together. And so we, we worked together, we wrote this song, and it's a song that we wrote really to be like a prayer, a very simple prayer, to strengthen our faith to come before the Lord and say, yes, this is, this is often what we have going on. We want a faith that's quick. 
more on a faith that's just been handed down to me. But may this be our prayer this morning for encouragement to be the kind of people whose faith can be tested and still come out strong on the other side. Let's make this song our prayer this morning as you stay seated and hear these words.
our prayer today for all of us can be, no matter where we are, we want a steadfast hope. Not this drive-through hope that people have and it only lasts and fickles out. We want a fire-tested faith, one that can sustain the tactics of the enemy, one that can sustain the wilderness seasons that we will find ourselves in, in this life. The kind of faith that defends us through the ages and through the seasons that will be here long past we are gone because the church will still stand, amen. You see, Jesus didn't fall for the temptation of the devil. And later on at the end of his ministry, he finds himself in another wilderness season, except it's a garden and he's in the garden with three friends, three disciples, and he's, praying in agony and it says this at the end of Matthew in verse in chapter 26 he told them my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death stay here and keep watch with me he went on a little further and he bowed down his face to the ground praying my father if it is possible let this cup of suffering be taken away from me yet I want your will to be done not mine you see, Jesus knew that the road ahead was gonna be full of suffering. He knew that the road ahead was gonna be difficult and maybe the temptation for people to see him as Messiah and skip all of that would have been quite enticing. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, I want the will of the Father, not my own. And may his example be an example to all of us today to trust that God is the one guiding us when we lean into searching the scriptures, to trust in the timing of God, even though when it doesn't match up for us. And when we trust in the character of God in this way, there is no need for that type of testing. Let's pray. God, we are grateful as we come to the table this morning and reminded of the sacrifice that you've made for us. We're grateful for the road that you walked. We're grateful for the way that you've given us life. And we pray that we would stop and remember that today. And whatever difficult season we may face in our wildernesses, Lord, we just pray that we would be strengthened by the example of Jesus here today to have a faith that can sustain the wilderness, no matter what road lies ahead. It's in the holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.